We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. I think that there is a, a kind of unrestrained nature to him. Yeah. Like he's willing to take a level of public backlash. A lot of right. people in this position wouldn't be, right? Willing yeah. to gamble on Tesla in a way others wouldn't. Yep. I've met him a couple of times. Um, and there is a all inness to him yeah. that is distinctive. For whatever reason in this era, we're seeing that pay off more for more people. I think it is a personality type, particularly that is somewhat rewarded on social media. Like if you are this kind of person, a Donald Trump and Elon Musk, who can sort of operate at that level, at that scale, without a lot of the sense of social restraint, yeah. like I just don't want all this incoming for good and for ill, like this is a pretty good era for you. I, I sometimes joke that this is really the era of the trickster god, yeah. that the the kind of personality type mythically that that is doing well right now, like at the very, very high levels is a trickster god. And then on the other side, like true restraint. We don't talk about them as much, but it's been a very good couple of years for Joe Biden, for Tim yeah. Cook, for Jeff Bezos. Frankly, I think Mark Zuckerberg is profiting off the Elon thing quite well. All of a sudden it's like, yeah, maybe not that bad. I'm Eric Tornberg, and this is Upstream with Eric Tornberg. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to mention a couple of shows we also run. One is Moment of Zen, which I co-host with Dan Romero and Antonio Garcia Martinez. We talk about everything from tech to history and philosophy. My other show is Cognitive Revolution, which I co-host with Nathan LeBenz. I recommend listening if you want to stay up to date with all things AI. Links for both shows are in the description. And now, on to the episode. Ezra Klein has been one of the most important voices in policy and politics over the last 10, 15 years. He's a policy wonk, but he also deeply understands technology and business having founded Box Media, and having lived in California the past few years. In this episode, we cover Silicon Valley's approach to politics, new political factions within Silicon Valley, his great book, Why We're So Polarized, and his growing intellectual movement focused on a politics of abundance, or as he also calls it, supply-side progressivism. Here's Ezra. Ezra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So, uh, I, I, in fact, I was I was looking back at the last time that I interviewed you formally, and it was uh, 2016. So it's it's nice to uh, to track. We were that. so I, young and naive then. Yes, exactly. So, Ezra, you have an upcoming book with Derek Thompson about the abundance agenda and about supply side progressivism. Why don't you unpack what you're trying to do in that book, and maybe trace a little bit of the evolution, whether it's what changed in the world or what changed in your thinking that that led to the book. Well, let me start with the idea rather than the book. The book is. Upcoming is a, a generous way to put it, given <laughs> where we are in the process right now. Um, but but yeah, upcoming. Supply-side progressivism is an idea I'd been circling around, I'd say actually for a couple of years, and in many ways since moving here. And I would describe it as a coming together of three threads of observation or of inquiry. So one is simply moving to California. And uh, a state I'm from, I, I grew up in Irvine, California. I went to school at UC Santa Cruz and UCLA. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. when I was 21 or so, and then came back 14 years later to the Bay Area. And this is a state governed by Democrats, governed by liberals, 
that has a lot of pretty profound problems that for all of its vaunted progressivism is not getting in a lot of important areas progressive outcomes. And I would particularly say that's true around the ability to live uh, a decent lifestyle on a normal middle-class salary. And so one thing about being focused on the political problems here separately from the from the national stage is, you know, when you're in Washington, like say in 2010 or 2011, and you're watching Republicans threaten then as now to breach a debt ceiling for no reason and cause a global financial crisis, you get really focused on the problems of the Republican Party. <laughs> but but here you have to be focused on the problems of, of progressive governance. So that got me thinking about, well, what is a problem in California? The problem in California continuously across a range of issues is insufficient supply of typically physical goods. We have a lot of intangible goods, a lot of knowledge economy goods and and capital in California. But when you talk about enough housing, uh, enough mass transit, enough um, University of California system schools, uh, enough clean energy capacity, enough transmission lines, we have real problems. So why was supply such a problem? In so many places, not just California, but you you look at Washington State, you look at New York, where liberals govern. That's piece one. Um, Piece two is we transitioned from an era in which the big problems in the economy were demand side. Uh, Aftermath of the financial crisis, you're dealing with very low, very persistently low demand. You have people like Larry Summers uh, in a previous guise talking about secular stagnation and an enduring economy without enough demand. And so a lot of us were focused to cover the economy on the problems of demand for a long time. And I think it's worth not underplaying this. We more or less solve the problem of demand. And that was in part through government policy, in part through a very accommodating Fed, in part through uh, Donald Trump and Republicans deciding they actually did not care about austerity. And as soon as he got into office, spending a shit ton of money and putting a bunch into tax cuts. So we moved from demand being the problem to supply being the problem. Um, Inflation, obviously, which we're we're kind of still living through, although it's curbing a little bit. Prices. And behind the, the sharp rise in post-pandemic prices. You have what what my wife, Annie Lowry, called in a sort of viral article a couple of years ago, the affordability crisis, you know, the high cost of, of housing, of healthcare, of childcare, of education, et cetera. So this sort of moved to what I've called in some places uh, a politics of prices. And then the final thing I'll say is that I'd been thinking for a long time, and particularly after my first book, Why We're Polarized, about what does a politics of technology look like? And that thinking got even sharper during the pandemic when you watched political political solutions to problems run out of steam fairly quickly. We cannot maintain distancing, say, for very long or lockdowns. But technological solutions like vaccines um, really prove worth their weight in gold. And in particular there with Warp Speed, Warp Speed to me is a really remarkable and inspiring program where you actually did have the government step in, say, we really want to see a supply of this invention emerge very, very quickly. We're going to make it easier to do so. We're going to provide certainty in getting there. But once we do that, we are going to ensure the distribution is equitable. And the vaccine really is remarkable in terms of, I think, how equitable that distribution was, at least early on. And add that into climate crisis, where I think most people understand that the solutions we need rely very heavily on innovation. That gets you thinking uh, about what other innovations we need to solve the problems we have. I'm a big animal rights and animal suffering person. Uh, I don't think we're going to make any progress on that unless we invent really remarkable alternative proteins that are tastier and healthier and cheaper and, and so on. And so that got me thinking a lot about politics of technology. And sort of those are the the three main tributaries for me into what becomes supply-side progressivism, which is how do you focus on the supply of things we need to realize the kind of world and economy and society that progressives like me at least claim to want? Yeah. 
those are three areas to, uh, to, to dig into. In, in some ways, your, your explanation rhymes with, uh, or has some rhymes with Mark Andreessen's It's, it's Time to Build. And in other ways, uh, you know, Tyler Cowen's uh, kind of state capacity libertarianism. Uh, and yet you guys also, you know, come at it from different perspectives. I'm curious whether on a processes perspective or whether on a outcomes perspective, where you differ from, from those two people or, or ideas or camps. So one, I would say one place I differ from Mark, and I wrote this in in response to Advox to It's Time to Build, is that I think Mark is quite distant from questions of institutions. He really framed that as almost just a kind of bizarre cultural problem. You know, build whatever you want. You know, it doesn't matter what I'm building. You know, I don't want to hear about what you think about what I'm building. Like, whatever you build, I'll support that too. And the question of why we can't build is an interesting one, but it requires, among other things, a really deep engagement with what has gone wrong when we have built before. Why did people erect institutions? Why did they create processes? Why did they create blockages? Why did they create systems and bills and so on that have made it so much easier to stop things from moving forward? And by the way, it's true for a lot of VCs who are very big kind of builder types on Twitter. But in my experience, a lot of them do not live in particularly dense places. And and again, worth doing a little bit of self-reflection on that and, and what that implies about the pervasiveness of, of sentiments, which are very natural, that people want their communities to be like the community they bought into when they bought into there. When I make this uh, point, I'm not just, uh, it's not really a cheap effort at saying hypocrite. I think most people are hypocrites across a lot of different dimensions. It's to say that it should inspire some, the generosity we bring to our own inconsistencies should also be brought to those of others. Um, so that's maybe one place where I would differ there. I have a much more sort of institutional and sort of rational actor view of why people come to the politics they do. Tyler is a little bit different. Tyler and state capacity libertarianism, I would just say the real difference between the two of us. Well, state capacity is a related but different concept to supply sideism. Um, state capacity is about the capacity the state has to act. Oftentimes for supply-side progressivism to, to work the way I want it to, you actually want to reduce the state's capacity to act. So one thing Tyler is pointing out there is that libertarians often don't think very hard about places where the state needs to be capable of achieving its goals, say in pandemic prevention or pandemic response. I think the arguments I'm making around supply-side uh, liberalism they're a little bit more agnostic. There are places where you would need the government to be able to do significantly more, places where you needed to start doing significantly less, um, which is a, a complicated thing about it. But but I think the main difference for Tyler and I is in the final word of the, the, the two ideas. Tyler is a... I don't know if I truly believe Tyler's a libertarian anymore, but he is some kind of sub-variant of a classical liberal um, in his own idiosyncratic kind of wonderful way. And I am a progressive. And so my views about what things we need to create supply of are very connected to my views of how society should look and be ordered and what kind of equity we should be shooting for and what kind of justice we should be shooting for. Um, somebody who's done work very related to me is Virginia Postrel um, in her book, The Future and Its Enemies. And we were both on a, a panel together. And somebody in the audience raised this question of, well, look, like, this all sounds well and good, but I've worked with these poor communities and, you know, who get, you know, these smelting factories or whatever it might be, you know, that have toxic runoff put right next to them. And like, what do you have to say to that? And Virginia says, um, and it's a Breakthrough Institute panel, you can look it up on YouTube, but it's interesting. It's worth watching, I think. And she says, look, it sucks to be poor. It always has. And almost a definition of being poor is you live in an area 
where there is less voice and things people don't want to have are put there. And my view is that is not good enough. Like that is not an answer to this. That is not the way I want society to be ordered. That is not the way I want voice to work. And so the progressivism side of this is not just like tacked on there for branding reasons. The the values I bring to politics, the the kind of um, nudges I'm trying to 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 deploy on society are are important to me. And so they they order what comes before it. Yeah. G- going back to your point on, on why we can't build. I want to look at a few few examples, whether it's maybe, uh, you know, education and, and housing. Is it much more complex than kind of entrenched interests vetoing a building because it wouldn't be uh, in their interest? And the solution is to have, you know, remove some of that veto power. Shed some 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 light on the nuance here. One tricky thing about this for me as I've gone into this is that it's very different in different places. And entrenched interests in any domain mean really different things. The, the reason it's been hard to get congestion pricing in New York City off the ground is different than the reason it is hard to get something done with multifamily ho- housing in Atherton, which is different than why Diablo Canyon almost closed and may still someday close a nuclear power plant in, in California, which is different than why we haven't built a UC except for Merced. Since 19- there is a kind of specificity to this, which is uh, tricky. Um, is the only way I can put it. The Burning Man organization suing the Bureau of Land Management to stop a geothermal um, exploratory drill from happening outside Girl Like Nevada. Like all of these are are different. Like what it means for the Burning Man institution to be an incumbent and what it means for homeowners to be incumbents and what it means for a community to not want a beloved forest near to be turned into solar panels. We have a lot of language like incumbents and status quo and entrenched interests and special interests. And I think that it's valuable language, but it often flattens a tremendous amount of nuance, including nuance within projects, right? Do we have actually good models of how to do community voice well and quickly? So I just did a podcast with Nick Bagley, Nick Bagley, I keep saying Bagley, uh, who's a law professor at the University of Michigan. And he's a he's a liberal. He was uh, chief counsel to Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And he has this very, from a liberal perspective, I think incendiary article called, uh, I think it's called like the liberal procedure fetish or something like that. But the point is procedure fetish. And, and his point in that is that one problem in liberalism is that there is a tendency to try to legitimize state action through the uh, imposition of a lot of procedure, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of procedure. And that that's wrong. The way state action is made legitimate is by being prompt, fast, responsive, and fair. And that procedure actually doesn't get you there. It looks like it does. It sounds like it does. It feels to the people doing it like it does, but it's not actually having that outcome. And so it is failing and making the action legitimate. And that's something really worth considering. I mean, in many cases, what you have, I think, is not really that a bunch of interests gathered together and got the exact process they want. What you often have is a process meant for a very different thing that is now running in a very different way. Um, this is not exactly on the supply side liberalism topic, but but I think a lot about how the ballot initiative process in California was created by the progressive movement in the early 1900s because of the railroad interests had bought up the entire legislature. And then a couple of years ago, it is used by Uber and Lyft, who in certain ways, I think one could imagine as being modern day successors of past very large transportation interests to uh, put down a constitutional amendment saying that no alterations can be made around how we think about their employees, except with a seven ace vote of supermajority of the legislature. Now, maybe you love that requirement, maybe you don't, but 
whatever the ballot initiative process was meant to do, it was not that. It's kind of working in the exact opposite way. So you also just do have this um, reality of long-running processes getting captured by whoever happens to be around and have the resources to capture them. And sometimes that's people who want money out of it. Sometimes people want preservation, sometimes safety, whatever it might be, uh, environmental standards. But it 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 does create a kind of difficulty in, in getting anything done. So I, I think of this as kind of a, a socio-political dial that has been set really high across a lot of different areas of society. But unlike in some other things I've covered, if you want the Senate to move faster, you could really just get rid of the filibuster. There isn't like the one thing here, right? There isn't the one statute I would change, the one ballot initiative I would repeal, um, the one sort of layer of this I would like elevate up to state government as opposed to local government. It, it, it's really very case by case. And the fact that it happens in so many places in so many different ways, I think, speaks to there being a kind of more generalized force and sort of social evolution behind it, as opposed to being just like one mistake by a bunch of bad decision makers somewhere. We'll continue after the break, but first, a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Upstream listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code Upstream. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention Upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to $5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC-insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. With thousands of pre-vetted marketers across a dozen roles, Marketer Hire matches you to your perfect marketer in 48 hours. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, Marketer Hire has you covered. So if you're a founder looking for top-notch marketing talent to grow your startup, head over to marketerhire.com to find your perfect match. Sign up with referral code UPSTREAM and you'll get $1,000 in credit on your first hire. 
It is interesting. During June 2020, uh, after after George Floyd, there was this sort of demand for reformation at the very, of, of how police unions work. And I'm curious if you could imagine things that would also cause people to think about the teachers union or other kinds of organizations that some people might be think think might be holding back supply in some way. I actually don't know enough about teachers unions to say whether they are or aren't. But it was just interesting that that was an episode that caused cha- a desired change on a structural level. And I'm curious if, 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 if you think we might see more of that. I think the more worrying lesson of that is I think police unions have properly been understood as having played some genuinely grotesque roles in American society, right? As somebody who is often um, supportive of the labor movement, I think the particular role police unions have played and the particular way their cultures have evolved are very worrying. And how much reform did we actually see after that? I mean, for all of that energy, for all that in-the-street protest, where are we now? Uh, and I would say not that much further, not that much different. I mean, look at the the videos that have come out of, of Nichols' death. So, look, I think on the one hand, you could certainly say that there has been energy for various reasons for systemic reform. I mean, I, look, like when I was in D.C., in the aughts, that was a period of huge ferment around education reform, as it was called. Um, uh, God, what was the name of our chancellor there who was on the cover of Time? She was an education reformer. I'm just blanking on her name. I'm sorry about that. Um, but but she was a kind of like an anti-teachers union education reformer. She was on the cover of Time. You know, Bill Gates was putting all this money into it. Like there was this huge thing uh, of, of a fight with the teachers unions. It led to the race to the top reforms and other things. So we've had moments like this. I mean, certainly Yimbis in California yeah. are a reaction. I mean, to me, when I talk about supply-side liberalism, I am doing something descriptive as much as I am doing something proscriptive. Like I am saying this is happening, that you can see a lot of its tendrils emerging. I mean, the the sort of original article I did on this, I think it's called The Economic Mistake the Left is Finally Confronting. I describe it explicitly there as saying, this is occurring. Like if you look at different things occurring, you can see something emergent out of that. And I'm trying to name the emergence. And then obviously I have my views about how it should shape and evolve. So one, I think we're seeing that. Two, I think we've seen it in some of these areas in the past. And three, I think that the the the, the very analogy you give should uh, be sobering to anybody who thinks even with a lot of energy reform for reform, that reform is, is easy or assured. Yeah. You're saying on the on the federal level, there's some structural reforms like the filibuster. On a local level, it, it's much more particular and harder to find kind of generalizable things. And so when you see you know, Silicon Valley or, or people like David Sachs or, or others kind of enter kind of local politics in a, in a more serious way in terms of getting involved, in terms of advocacy, what do you think that they don't quite understand when they apply kind of perhaps, perhaps the Silicon Valley perspective to uh, local politics? Uh, it depends on the person. I'm not, to be honest, familiar with yeah. David Sachs's uh, local advocacy. You know, but some of them do, I think, a good job. Like there's a, a group, um, the sort of, I'll get their name wrong. It's like the Coalition for Effective Governance or something, yeah. but Misha Chellum and that crew. Yeah. You know, I don't agree with them on literally everything, but but I think they're serious. I think they're trying to understand how the system works and where the choke points are and, and who to work with and, and how to figure it out. And I, you know, and I think, you know, we'll see where that evolves into, but but I think they're doing a good job of that. Like my point is not to sit here and say this is all too complicated to get involved with. I actually think the point is you should get involved locally and you can identify the difficulty in doing something in San Francisco or something in Fresno in a way that it's hard to say across the entire country, this is what we would do about it. Or this is like the generalizable way to say, here's how we would fix it. 
to my thinking, some of what we're doing, me and Derek, with um, you know this, this book and, and this project more broadly is I think of it as a lens more than I think of it as a prescription. So, you know, going back to sort of my early pieces on this, at the most basic level, I'm just trying to create the question of, or I'm just trying to pose a question of, do progressives do a good job noticing when their goals are being thwarted by supply side obstruction or slowness or insufficiency in the same way they do on the demand side, right? I think progressives are very good at looking around the economy and saying, hey, people cannot afford health insurance or housing or education, whatever. And we want to try to subsidize that for them, right? Subsidizing on the demand side in basically any domain you can think of is something progressives do in many, many different ways. We, I mean, vouchers and, you know, cash transfers and all kinds of different things, right? We do not, I think, think about production nearly as much. um, And we do not think about innovation nearly as much. And so some of it is saying, like, here's a lens and here are some examples that then having that example in your head, maybe you see a similar example in the city you live in or in the industry you're in or nationally or, or whatever it might be. On some level, this is almost a set of metaphors to be applied as much as it is, more than it is a guidebook, exactly, or more than it is an attempt to be comprehensive. Yeah. And what's interesting to me about this, I interpret as pro-growth, pro-technology, to your point about the politics of technology, and it seems to me bipartisan, both in terms of there are people on both sides who agree with it, but also people on both sides who are uncomfortable with it, both perhaps, uh, you know, cut some of the environmentalists on the left, but also some other groups. But then also on the right, you're also seeing this kind of like deeply skeptical of tech, skeptical of growth, you know, the sort of, you know, Patrick Deneen on your podcast, that was a fascinating episode, the, the guys at Compact. How do you think about kind of this, like almost reorientation on these topics? So my first book is about polarization. And uh, I think two things from that are very relevant here. So one, one thing I do like about this is that I think it is a productive cleavage, Right. As opposed to an unproductive cleavage that is like long ago got into a place where nobody's going to move on it. That said, a dynamic I'm pointing out in the first book and that will happen here too, and already has happened in some areas, is the more this becomes a central issue, the more the parties will figure out which side they're on. So, I mean, we've definitely seen this around single family zoning over the past couple of years. Um, Think back to when Trump is in office and and to the California race here, the, the recall race. As progressives have moved towards being explicitly uh, against single-family zoning, Republicans are moving much more into a defense of single-family zoning. And so, if single-family zoning becomes like the hot issue, I don't think for very, I don't think it will be bipartisan for very long at all. <laughs> uh, and I mean, they're always individuals, right? But yeah. uh, but but these things have a tendency to find in a polarized political system to for, for the cle- for people to figure out how to organize around the cleavage. But so long as it is existing in kind of the back of politics, or it's more salient in places with one party government, um, like California is, then it can have this sort of unusual, strange bedfellows coalition. So that part of it is, I think, fun and valuable and interesting right now. I'm not unbelievably confident in it sustaining itself. And that's particularly true because Again, for me, a lot of these things are yoked to particular values. So housing is a little bit different because it is so um, local and state-oriented an issue. But if you think of clean energy, which is something I've spent a lot of time on in this area, clean energy is a highly partisan-coded question. Um, Or if you think about alternative proteins, 
meat is a highly culturally coded question that people desperately want to turn into a partisan one, right? There was a whole thing when the Green New Deal came out about how they were going to ban hamburgers. Then there was something about Joe Biden banning red meat. And of course, like Joe Biden, (laughs) not a vegetarian in any way, not an animal rights guy, not going to ban meat. But it's all to say that I wouldn't the number of things I've watched go from, oh, what an interesting bipartisan issue with a lot of cross-cutting coalitions to, nope, same fight as always is is high. So I'm a little bit jaded on that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting when when the topics kind of shift, um, like, you know, the right, it, it feels like used to be more free market on, on immigration and, and trade, among other issues. And, and the left maybe used to be slightly more protectionist uh, around some of the, these these topics. To the extent that that shift has happened, feel free to correct that. Is, is it best explained by the right, the population shifting, and that the right represents a little bit more of the the working class, at least from a non college ed- educated perspective, or how do you see that? The immigration shift, I think, happened before the working class shift on the right. So you can go back to say two thousand and five, or no, this was in 07, I think it was. And you have, I mean, you can see the the division in the party on this even then, but but George W. Bush and John McCain push this big immigration reform bill, and the bill is destroyed by a revolt coming out of conservative talk radio. Um, and so it's like a conservative revolt against a Republican bill that that ends up dooming that dooming that project. So uh, for various reasons, I think the right has been uh, as immigration has become a more polarized issue, the the home of anti-immigration sentiment. I mean, Pat Buchanan is running as a Republican in like 1988 um, and was obviously a Republican before that. So I don't think that is that new. Now, the sort of dominance of the anti-immigration sentiment uh, in the Republican Party, that's newer. And that emerges, I think, basically, that's Donald Trump. You know, if Donald Trump doesn't run in 2016, I don't know who wins the nomination, but I think it's plausible you have like a Marco Rubio or a Jeb Bush or Chris Christie. And all of them had very, very different views on on immigration. And so I think that that division within the Republican Party would not have been settled in the way it was settled by Donald Trump's uh, victory, where where sort of he ran, I don't want to say a single issue candidacy, but, but but a candidacy essentially on immigration and free trade. And so I guess it's also kind of my answer for free trade. I think these were issues that had always divided the parties internally. Both parties were quite split. I mean, Bernie Sanders was a skeptic of, immig- of um, liberal immigration bills and a skeptic of free trade. And you could find Republicans who were like that, and you could find Democrats and Republicans who were the opposite. And Trump so fully associating the Republican Party with uh, an attack on immigration, that made Democrats much more liberal on immigration. The interesting thing is that the skepticism of free trade, I think, has persisted. So in unlike immigration, where basically Trump polarized the parties around it and Democrats became vastly more liberal on immigration by the end of Trump's presidency than they were before it in, in general, free trade, you see Trump runs and like Hillary Clinton sort of absurdly comes out against the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, which clearly she was somewhat involved with as Secretary of State and as part of the administration. And the Democratic Party never turned around on that. You know, they have kind of maintained that position, right? It's not like Biden is, you know, resuscitate, resuscitating TPP. And the same is true on China. Yeah. Biden has been, if anything, significantly tougher on China, at least on a policy perspective, than Trump had been. Um, Biden has gone places which I'm, you know, to be honest, uncomfortable with, um, uh, you know, like the view that we should hinder China's progress on semiconductors, not really because they're a national security uh, technology, although they are that on some level, but just because we don't want them to get too good at technology too quickly. 
I'm not saying I can't see the logic of it, but it is a hell of an escalation. And like, it's yeah. sort of remarkable. There's a great political piece about um, China trade policy under Biden. And you have these Trump national security people being like, we would like that is way beyond where we thought it was reasonable to be. And it's at least worth thinking about what that means. And, and I'm trying to do some thinking about what that means. Um, so maybe I'm getting a field f- uh, a further afield from your question here, but but it is interesting to think about the ones where one party takes a really striking a position on, on an issue and that polarizes it versus there are occasional cases where a party comes out, sort of reverses on an issue and that becomes something like the new consensus. And on free trade in China, I think that's more or less been the case. Like if we were to go back, you know, a, a year or two and say, hey, one side is going to be pro-Ukraine and one side is going to be anti-Ukraine or kind of take whatever big um, schism, it, it's not always obvious which side is going to come out on which topic. And some of it is just kind of path dependent on who Trump picks first or, or someone else kind of picks first and then the other side has to has to take the, the opposition. I think that's right. Yeah. To that end, if, you're, if your book on polarization were written in 2023... Would you have uh, added or, or edited anything? And I'm, I'm curious, just what, what's changed uh, as regards to this or what's changed in your thinking as it regards to this? I think it mostly holds up pretty well. Uh, I've been, I was really pleased to see what a strong 2022 the book had, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> yes. where it got on the Bill Gates and Obama summer yeah. reading list, despite coming out a few years before. I didn't expect that. Um, so anybody listening should feel confident picking it up because <laughs> also what I'm about to say is now in the afterword that I was able to put on the, the new edition. But the main thing that I didn't talk enough about was education as a locus of polarization, as a dimension of polarization. So I talk a lot about different things we can be polarized on. And the one I don't talk enough about in the early version of the book is education. And one reason I don't, uh, and obviously I would now, but I still find education very hard to talk about in any kind of precise way because education seems to me to be a correlate for something we don't really understand. Hmm. Like it is our best way of tracking something that we're trying to get at that has become a very, very important driver of, of, of polarization, but it's not exactly it. So this is one reason why all the polls didn't suddenly work between 2016 and 2020 after the pollsters adjusted for education, because education was picking up something that is some miasma, but, but was not fully representing something that is a miasma of like, low trust in institutions and a kind of cultural conservatism, like what, what Pippa Norris would call a cultural backlash. And the difference in politics right now is not what you learn when you attend Ohio State University, right? And I think it's really important to remember when you think about college education, most people are not going to Ivy League colleges. They're not going to the top 50 colleges in US News and World Report. They're going to um, state colleges or colleges you, you know a lot of people haven't heard of, and they're getting a, de- a degree in marketing. And maybe that college is more liberal than, than you would like to think it is, like maybe you know Cal Poly, whatever, but it's not that liberal. It just isn't. Like, and that's not what they're doing there for, for that matter. And so there's something being picked up that is more than just the Marxists in the sociology department at Yale are <laughs> indoctrinating all the kids in post-colonial theory. Yeah. But we don't really know what it is. Um, I've done podcasts and, and explored the idea that maybe it's class, right? Education is maybe a closer correlate of class now than, yeah. than anything else is. Not because it's making you so liberal, but because it is kind of acculturating you to a certain 
set of manners and mores, and that doesn't make you super woke, but it does make you kind of like repelled by these other things. It's very hard to figure out, but but education definitely would be the thing I would have wanted to explore more deeply. Yeah. On, on the topic of institutional distrust, I'm, I'm curious whether you think there's more explanatory power in the idea that, hey, there's been this kind of fear mongering among institutional decline or whether the institutions themselves have just become sclerotic for being around for so long and not needing to innovate, or maybe that, you know, there's been a kind of platform shift with the internet and they're no longer kind of set up for success in in that era. Like, what do you think is most explanatory for institutional distress? Well, it depends a little bit on what we're trying to explain. So if you want to look at a trend line of institutional distrust, the big fall happens before the internet. So I think a lot of us would want to look like at the last couple of years, and so would I, because I think something important is happening. But that's not a a little bit like social media can't explain polarization because most of the rise in polarization happens way before social media. And that doesn't mean it's not worsening it or accelerating it or changing it or amplifying it now. But when I wrote my book, I got all these like, so is it Facebook? I was like, it can't be Facebook because I mean, this began like decades ago. I think there's a bit of that for institutions. I would say the interesting thing about institutions is that low, we are polarizing around institutional trust. Yeah. So compared to, I just wrote a piece about this, uh, compared to, let's call it 15 or 20 years ago, let's call it the George W. Bush era. You would say, I, I would have said back then that the anti-institutional strain in American life was more mixed between the two parties. So it is true, Republicans really didn't like the media. They didn't like kind of elite universities. You know, they didn't like a couple other things we could name. But Democrats didn't like big business. And Democrats didn't like, right? Like, and you could kind of go through that. And I would say now there's a more kind of holistic anti-institutional type in the Republican Party, right? Which is reflected in many ways by the turn against big tech and big business and cronyism and, you know, Kevin McCarthy saying that, like, he doesn't even think the chamber of, he hasn't heard from the chamber of commerce in forever. Do they even have any power around here anymore? You know, and you also see it. I think there's a very, I mean, there's a very weird, I never know exactly how to characterize and won't try, but, but this kind of anti-institutional, almost like anti-big business thing happening among tech executives yeah. who like themselves run or sit on the boards of big businesses. And it, I do think it, there's a, a very profound, like almost Marxist, like capital being really mad at labor thing playing out in Silicon Valley, which has made a lot of these folks like anti-institutional because they dislike their own institutions and yeah. feel unappreciated. And like, you know, their employees are always haranguing them and they can all organize on Slack now. And like being a manager at a certain kind of visible, like highly educated workforce company has just become a lot less fun than it was, I think, 15 or 20 years ago. Like it was, I'm not saying it wasn't hard 15 or 20 years ago, but what it means to be an upper level manager at a major media technology uh, finance, you know, some kind of high labor force power, highly visible industry, it's really changed. It's led to a lot of resentment and a lot of backlash among the people on top of that. So I, I would just know too, there's just a very weird, like the anti-institutionalism of like Elon Musk and that particular like class of yeah. VCs around him is a is a not unknown. I mean, you can find a lot of examples of this historically, but is a fascinating turn because from a different perspective, like they are the institutions. Yeah. But it's always been more complicated than that. And it and it is now too. 
but but yeah, that's the main thing I would say. I think more than there's been a tremendous change in institutional trust in the past 10 years or 15 years, um, although there has been some and things like the Supreme Court that were high are now low. I think what's more interesting is that there is a concentration of it used to have like a mix of which institutions the two sides trusted and Democrats are significantly more aligned with business now than they were and Republicans significantly uh, more against it and basically like disaligned with every major institutional structure in ways that, you know, we can, we can talk through the implications of it, but I think they're quite profound actually. Yeah. It, it is interesting. Just the different factions within tech that, that are kind of forming my friend, Nadia Asparova, she separates it as such. There's the, the Davos, uh, tech uh, elite and it maybe puts like uh, Gates or even Zuckerberg to some degree or um, and, mm-hmm. and they you know are trying to spread liberal democracy via kind of international organizations then there's kind of the the founder mindset um, or you know startup uh, elite uh, and that's like the you know it's time to build the the, the Mark Dreesen, the the Elon and there's some you know versions of that that are more right wing than, than others uh, but then there's also the the crypto elite that are trying to you know the vitalics of the world that are trying to do something pretty different. Um, and they're trying to do like via a different structural, you know, they're trying to have decentralized public goods or kind of this Web3 vision. And it's interesting to see people float among the different camps and um, yeah, see, see how that plays out. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would have to spend some real time thinking about my taxonomy. I think like yeah. Davos tech is correct. I think yeah. there's definitely that sort of more institutional tech, you know, Tim Cook, right? Yeah. I, I think I would want to cut the founders into some different categories here. Yeah. The politics of Elon Musk and um, some of the people like that are very different than the politics of a lot of individual founders. But yeah. but there are, I think, two real camps of that. Like I, I think there's a sort of left founder culture emergent and a right and a reactionary, a right founder yeah. culture emergent, and they're really really in tension with each other now. But I think that the 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 right founder culture is has become very much about in a way that people almost like don't really want to directly look into. It's very much a backlash against their own employees. I mean, it's completely yeah. clear. And this is uh, something I've always been completely fascinated by, actually. I mean, you think of it like a Brian Armstrong at Coinbase. Just the level of frustration with what it is people are talking about in Slack in your own company, mixed with, to me, the sort of interesting unwillingness to take a sort of the medium is a message attitude towards what it means to have invented and helped <laughs> like fund things like Slack or rolled them out is really, yeah. it, it's fascinating. So I found the whole base camp kerfluffle of like a couple, I don't remember when it was now, but, but really interesting. I mean, they created, I guess what, what's in it is base camp the name of the company or was that the product? Uh, Campfire the, was a product, right? Yes. Yes. The company's base camp. So base camp is a company. Campfire was like a precursor. I understood it at a certain point as a precursor to hip chat. But then HipChat became a, a precursor to Slack and to Teams and the rest of it. And the cre- and everybody's like, oh, this is going to democratize everything and we're going to make it possible for everybody to talk. And, and then you did. And it's like, oh, my God, what are these people saying? Yeah. And this created, I think, a real – I mean, first, there's an effort to mandate it out of existence, right? You can't talk about politics anymore, like on the work Slack and – and then, I mean, a lot of this was happening on Twitter, so it gets like literally bought by Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just something very interesting playing out in the labor politics that I think is sort of masquerading as other kinds of politics, but are, are a real conflict between between labor and capital here. And then crypto, crypto is interesting. I mean, Vitalik is a to me, and I quite like Vitalik, and he's been on my podcast, and yeah. he's a little bit of a, a distinctive figure. Yeah. Um, and 
I think what it, I'm not sure what crypto elite means today versus what it meant a year ago. And I mean, does Chris Dixon count as crypto elite, right? Do all the VCs who are pumping money into it not count as crypto elite? What about Brian? Like, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that there is within crypto a lot of different subgenres between like the crypto utopians who are yeah. not that interested in crypto as a financialization mechanism and the sort of crypto financiers who are like, these are very different and to me somewhat irresolvable visions of this. I mean, something that I have often talked about with people in crypto is that you cannot solve the problems of capitalism, which is often what people are ideologically talking about with a technology that builds hyper-financialized capitalism into its core structure. You could solve other problems, right? Like you, you very well might be able to make remittances more efficient. But the idea that big Web2 firms emerged and like developed a lot of power and then wielded that power in ways people don't like, and yet we've created another power concentrating thing with unequal financial rewards like that you then need to create middleman institutions to make safe and usable that then become things that the same VCs who invested in web two and yeah. like the whole thing was so like weird from the beginning that there's a, a kind of, I think, irresolvable tension at its heart for now. And which side, if either of them wins out through that or what kind of synthesis can emerge is really, really going to be um, significant. Um, and I think it's not, it's not quite knowable uh, at the moment. And then I would just finally say that it's very easy. Some of this all feels old to me hmm. when we're talking about, I mean, not, I mean, obviously there's a lot of new news yeah. about Elon Musk and others, but certainly my impression is that there's a set of technologies that are emergent now that are different and have different internal political dynamics than all the people who ran like social media and smartphone based either hardware or software companies. Um, so, I mean, Musk is one of them to, to be fair, but I think the amount of energy and investment now going into uh, AI is obviously one area. Um, and I think we really don't know what those business models will be. And like that will really affect how that evolves, but green tech in particular, alt proteins for a while, we'll see where that goes. I do think there's been a little bit of a move towards other kind, towards trying to solve other kinds of problems technologically. And my sense from knowing those industries a bit and people in them a bit is they have very, very different dynamics than both the um, founders and the financiers of like what you might call web two. Yeah. In what sense are you saying more about that? I just think they're focused on other kinds of problems. Yeah. Again, I don't love web two, but I think that basically the set of personalities who emerged in the web two era and Elon is one of those people, yeah. um, but, but all these guys you're talking about are. That is a maturing industry in a way and a maturing culture that has now developed as maturing industries and maturing cultures do a set of like resentments and enmities and concerns yeah. and questions and incumbents and whatever. And if you're somebody like working on next generation wind turbines or trying to figure out how to make like algae that does such and such for carbon in the atmosphere, people working on direct air capture, the people working on how to create cultivated fish, right? Cultivate, you know, make fish out of cultivated cells that has a texture. They just like have a different set of concerns in part because they don't, I think, have quite as much time to sit around like fighting out um, related, but not quite on point culture wars when you have a lot of like hard technological problems to solve. I don't want to be too idyllic about it because obviously like people will all these things will change and people who work on all kinds of things have their own political opinions. But I just, 
one thing I think is a little bit happened is that the people who dominated like the last cycle of technology, the problems they were trying to solve have now matured into not that interesting and their attention is a little bit elsewhere. Yeah. Right. Even when their problems are still very interesting. I mean, I think the problems for Tesla and SpaceX are interesting, but clearly Elon Musk's attention is somewhat elsewhere. Whereas the people who are building things that they're not Mark Zuckerberg yet. Yeah. They actually still have to build the fucking thing. Yeah. Totally. And so they don't actually have a ton of time, either from the Davos or the right wing founder perspective, to like have a million other side battles on on every topic under the sun. Like the question of like who's pissing you off on Twitter today is just like a little smaller. That's yeah. my impression. Maybe I'm no, wrong. No, no, I, think, I mean, I you mean, would know this a lot better than me, frankly. Yeah, I, I think you're you're right. And part of it's just they don't have to focus on content moderation because that that doesn't affect their everyday, you know, mm-hmm. as much as you know, running these platforms or investing in these platforms. I think your point about the. The, the labor versus capital is is spot on, and it's, it's no coincidence that uh, James Burnham has become a kind of cult cult author in in uh, in, in Silicon Valley. You know, he talks about the differences between sort of manager interests and owner interests because it's interesting that this right founder sort of class has emerged when they don't typically have like you know right wing position. Like they're not pro life, they're not like um, anti immigration or something. They're they're not against gay marriage. And so how are they actually right? It's just that they're kind of standing up against maybe like social uh, or you sort of leftism that they think has gone too far within their companies probably. So I wrote about this a lot um, a couple of years ago when the intellectual dark web was more yeah. of a thing people talked about before it split in like, yeah. uh, like a total <laughs> catastrophe of vaccine conspiracy yeah. theorizing. But you would hear this all the time where people who were clearly on the right side, the R-I, no, it's not differently spelled, clearly on the, um, what I would call the reactionary, but I want to say that in kind of value neutral way, because it's a very loaded term, reactionary side of the political divide. Like, how can I be a right winger? Like I might be, um, to use the most extreme example, because this was not the intellectual dark web, but you would have people like Richard Spence back then, who was like an actual white supremacist, be like, I'm pro universal (laughs) healthcare. Like, how can I be a right winger? And it's a mistake, I think, to be overly literal about the way politics is organized in Washington, D.C. And the fact that one of the recurrent cleavages, like the most persistent cleavage going back to James Burnham and way before that, that on some level, like the left and the right are defined by either a kind of appetite for and excitement about the way power is changing or shifting or could be changed and shifted in society versus a revulsion towards or an opposition towards the way power is changing and shifting and could change and shift in society. Like that's not something that Silicon Valley invented in some interesting way in the year of our Lord 2019. It just isn't. So the idea that you have um, a huge backlash across this country, but, but you see it here too, towards a set of social and power changes that come as a direct outgrowth of very, very, very rapid demographic change, right? A rapid browning of America, um, an increase of like the number of foreign-born residents from something like 4% in the 1970s to something like 16, 17% um, around now. I've not looked at those numbers in, in a year or two, so I could have that a little bit off. Um, you know, a majority of infants, you know, in the country are non-white now. That's a huge, I mean, we don't always know exactly how to translate that into politics, but basically, are you comfortable with the fact that this country is demographically changing very fast or are you not, has created a tremendous amount of political ferment. 
And oftentimes, like a kind of gut reaction to that is really where people fall. And it takes some time for that to get translated into a kind of coherent politics. It's just, it's not that related to how you feel about um, universal healthcare being a good example, actually. And then the labor capital thing is is also, um, and then somehow these two things have merged, right? In the way that political coalitions often merge somewhat unrelated demands. Yeah. Like why are the people who care the most about climate change also the people who want abortion to be legal? It's not like a super great answer to that question, except for the dynamics of coalitions yeah. and um, uh, uh, and polarization and kind of political alliances and information ecosystems and so on. And I, I think that's basically what has happened here too. I mean, there is a, I don't know what to call the sort of um, Andreessen Musk politics versus what to call the sort of, but there, there's a, I mean, at the center of that is a very, very pitched battle that is simultaneously about how social mores are changing and how like labor and capital are fighting it out. And weird things are getting grafted onto that, but it's a very old kind of fight. Yeah. To, to, to that end, um, someone else who wrote a book about polarization uh, last few years is uh, Chris Caldwell. And, and, and you wrote about it. I'll, I'll hear from you about it in a second. But Chris Caldwell, one of his ideas is that Civil rights actually, uh, you know, created sort of a competing constitution that kind of exposed the tensions or potential tensions within liberalism around freedom and equality, and 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 thus we've been duking it out kind of ever since of these competing constitutions. And Richard Hanania has a related post where he says, uh, "Wokeness is just civil rights law," and and the fact that companies have moved to the left somehow is explained by its employees moving to the left, but in other ways, it's it's accelerated by companies just trying to follow the law. I'm curious if you think if you're sympathetic with any of that that as a as a possible explanation. I would want to go read the Hanania post before I commented on it because I haven't read that. Um Caldwell's thesis I'm familiar with. I haven't read the whole book and it's been a while since I looked at it at all. I don't remember finding it very convincing when I read it. In part just because I think we're dealing with a lot of downstream functions and you would want reasons things were happening at certain times in certain places. And I just find raw demographics then amplified by um, uh, sort of attentional and youth-oriented industries to be a much more persuasive factor. I, I just think you can't follow these fights and not notice. They are typically much more pitched and they start even if they eventually end elsewhere at the cultural level. So the fights over like Nike <laughs> choosing, uh, you know, a sort of uh, a football player who is also understood as being very outspoken on civil rights as a, as a spokesperson. And then, you know, like a lot of Republicans burning their Nikes. I think you're just missing something if you over literalize into policy all the time. And the idea that these are two competing constitutions never struck me as what was at their core, also sort of the idea that we weren't having obvious relatives of these fights when we had a very different kind of constitution dominant in this country yeah. a couple of years. Anyway, but because I've not read Caldwell's full book or like seen it for a couple of years, I don't want to get too deep into the guts of that argument because he might have counters on some of these and I'm not being fair to. Sure. Shifting gears a bit, Roy Tixiera and David Shore have written about how you know they, they come from the left and they are worried that in some areas the left has gone too far left that it is um, hurting their their electoral chances. 
uh, in certain policies, certain races. I'm, I'm curious if you are sympathetic with that analysis and, or where you differ from, from them. Uh, so I wrote a 6,000 word piece about David Shore and the kind of fights over popularism yeah. in the Democratic Party. So I've, I've kind of uh, allowed a lot of different voices to speak through me there. The place I've come out on that is, I mean, it is obviously true that political coalitions, let me say what I agree with with David. Um, one, that the Democratic Party, uh, in particular, the not alone, has a significant representational problem in who staffs it in terms of what their politics are compared to the median voter. But that's also, by the way, true for the Republican Party. Um, the Democratic Party also often uh, takes positions on things that are quite unpopular or just quite a little bit odd. But also the Republican Party has more or less united around um, denial of the 2020 election. So the, the reason I keep bringing up the Republican Party like this is to note that it's actually very hard to police parties in the way that he is implying is possible. So it is true that you could probably do a better job of tracking the median voter uh, if you're if you're a Democrat. It's also true you could do that if you're a Republican. And I think in general, Democrats have been a lot better at it. Like who actually does win the Democratic primary in 2020? Oh, it's like Joe Biden, like old, yeah. you know, known to be moderate, et cetera. And then I am very skeptical, a place where I differ with David, where I differ with my friend Matt Iglesias. I've been a policy reporter for my whole career. I think the level of policy literalism, a lot of their arguments implying the population just has no basis, in fact. Obviously, there's some, right? That, that is one of the things that makes it through. But if you asked me which would have a, a bigger effect, getting people who have a certain, to go back to our conversation about education, getting people who have a certain sort of cultural vibe around them, for lack of a better term, versus getting people who seem the same but have more moderate positions. I mean, I would say the first one almost every time. I think a really good example of that is Fetterman in Pennsylvania, who in general is extremely, extremely liberal. And if he had not suffered the stroke, I mean, he suffered the stroke and won a quite big victory anyway in what could have been a very tough race. I think if he had not suffered the stroke, it's possible he could have completely stomped Dr. Oz. Yeah. And it's not because, I mean, Matt will point out that there are places where he moderates. And of course, that's true as it is for every politician. But in general, he's an extremely liberal politician who nevertheless vibes like he's a guy who would back you up in a bar fight, it, which is all only to say that I think that the um, difficulties the Democratic Party and for that matter, again, the Republican Party sometimes have are more about whether or not the the sort of tribunes of their politics are people who like kind of the median voter, whoever that is, if that's even a relevant kind of concept, given the way we fracture elections, are, are people those voters connect to more than it is like every individual policy proposal they have. I've often said that I think the thing the popularists miss when they talk about this is that everything in the end is about unpopularism. Because for anybody to hear about anything, uh, there's a big point of my book, it's actually very hard to get any kind of message out anywhere. Because it, for anybody to hear anything, it has to be something that generates controversy. What ends up mattering, what, it, what people hear about you, are the positions you take that inspire opposition. For some time, Shore was like a big Bernie Sanders proponent because Sanders had a pretty high favorability rating compared to other politicians. And one thing that's always been interesting about Bernie Sanders compared to a lot of other politicians is he will always bite the bullet almost always on his own positions. So why did Bernie's healthcare positions dominate virtually every single Democratic debate? 
in 2020. And the reason is that he was always willing to say, I will abolish all private health insurance and I will raise taxes on middle-class people. And by biting those bullets, he was able to create a conflict that gave him agenda control. And so the, the really, if you have a bunch of popular positions, but no agenda control, you really don't have that much in the end. What you need is agenda control in addition to positions that ultimately make people side with you. And so the question of where you're willing to say something unpopular that creates conflict with your own side or creates conflict in the country at large becomes really central. And you know, I do think that um, one of the things that they are right about, to kind of to circle back to a place of agreement, is that it is almost always better for Democrats to try to create conflict around economic messages than sociocultural ones. And they've probably not been doing an ideal job of that in, in recent years. But it is something they've been doing more of. Uh, and you know, a lot of the, the positions that certainly Joe Biden has taken for whatever his failures as a communicator are, they are efforts to create these kinds of arguments. Um, the final thing I would say is that I do think social media has changed us a lot on both sides. So when you think about who defines a party, compared to when like I entered politics, the leadership of parties is much less powerful, with the exception maybe of the president, in defining parties. And the people who are effective attention entrepreneurs, you know, Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, or whoever you might imagine on the right, you know, a kind of squad, uh, you know, et cetera, on the left, they've just become much more important. So, like, I have quite conservative family members and, and, and people I talk to regularly. And it really doesn't matter there what Joe Biden is saying exactly in general. Like, they are watching Fox News or listening to conservative media, and they are getting, like, the most inflammatory things said by the most inflammatory Democrats. And if you are a liberal listening to MSNBC, you're getting something of the reverse. And that just creates a real difficulty for parties as organizations that nobody, I think, is anywhere really even close to solving. I think the only way to solve it is to hold the presidency with a very aggressive, talented communicator. And recently, Republicans held the presidency with a not very talented, (laughs) but very aggressive, or at least not very strategic. He is very talented. A not very strategic, but highly aggressive communicator. And now Democrats have the presidency and they have a highly strategic, but not very talented communicator in it. And so, you know, what what you want functionally is to like have Barack Obama, Um, but generationally talented politicians don't come along very often. What is the right mental model for thinking about the the powers of a president? Like, what what is the president actually capable of doing? It's not like you have someone like Elon coming into Twitter and he lets go, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, a huge chunk of the Twitter staff, and you kind of see like what what are the, the powers of a CEO. How do we think about like what is the president actually capable of? I mean, it depends. Uh, Joe Biden could launch airstrikes on China tomorrow. What he could not do tomorrow is make a minuscule change to the federal tax code. <laughs> I mean, it's a very weird thing, yeah. a, a weird way we've set it up. Look, you get old things, right? Like Richard Neustadt, you know, the power of the presidency is power to persuade, et cetera. I'm not even sure it's that anymore. The power of the president is very different in different domains. It is very different in conditions of divided and unified government. It is very different if you control the Supreme Court and if you don't. Um, and it's very different depending on the match between president and communication medium. And so I don't know that there is as much one answer to that as people want there to be. But I guess in general, domestically, the president's power is much more limited than people want to believe it is. 
And on foreign policy, it's much more expansive than it probably should be. And then attentionally, it's very mixed. You can get attention, but often not for what you want attention for. And the more you make things a center of the agenda because of various dynamics of polarization, the more you will increase backlash to your own proposals. It's a tough job. Yeah. And and when people talk about the the deep state, they they you know often kind of catastrophizing, you know, or worse. But is it right to think about this sort of quasi-permanent government employee class that is neither accountable to uh, the market nor democratic uh, mechanisms? I mean, it's definitely a civil service. I think when people call it the deep state, like <laughs> it's making it sound somewhat more mysterious than it actually yeah. is. Like there are people who work in offices. And as we were just talking about labor and capital in Silicon Valley, there's a deep state in Silicon Valley too that has infuriated all the bosses. And yes, you can take over a company with your own money and fire a bunch of people. But in five or 10 years, he may not be able to do that even at his own company. Like I think he'd have more trouble yeah. doing that at Tesla today than he did uh, in a unusual takeover of Twitter. Yeah. I mean, there is a state actually when I initially conceived of my first book and it had a kind of different structure back then, it was called the deep state. Um, hmm. but way prior, this is 2011. I think it was like way wow. prior to Trump taking that term. Everybody's like, you can't use that. That's a term for Turkey. <laughs> like nobody's gonna. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> but yeah, look, there's a, there is on the one hand, a federal bureaucracy that needs to be used and deployed if you're going to do things, right? The the president doesn't run around carrying out the activities of the federal government by themselves. That due to civil service protections and other things, uh, it has some insulation on certain issues. And also, uh, unless you're being pretty extreme and typically like running afoul of the law or something, a talented administrator a talented administrator can move it in their direction, but even the most talented administrator, even when there is alignment between them and the state, cannot move it as fast as they would like. So I remember talking to Ron Klain about um, pandemic policy, and I remember him saying, I forgot what the exact point, but but it was a very vivid way he put this. Where he's like, even when you know you are the president and everybody, people are like on the same side as you on an issue and you stand up on the table yelling, this is the most important thing, you still may not be able to get the whole bureaucracy to activate in the way you want it to. So I I think it's a little, I think it got complicated. I think it got very complicated the way people saw it because of Trump, who was not really trying to run it. He was more comfortable being in opposition to it than he was to being in charge of it. It's been a longtime frustration of Democrats or Republicans come in and are able to use the thing for their purposes. So, you know, you think of a more talented administrator, I don't know, which is all to say that I'm sort of shadow boxing with what I think you're asking me about the deep state. And the answer is that the deep state, like any bureaucracy, is very complicated. And one of the funny things is that it often is very frustrating for liberals who want to get things done because it's sclerotic and rules bound in other ways. And so it's like the problem for liberals is it follows the rules too much. Um, and then the problem for you know conservatives, but sometimes their advantage is like they don't care about the rules and will go around them in a way the liberals often won't. And so you know it it, it just kind of depends. Yeah, sometimes I hear in the crypto community something along the lines of hey, it's possible that this tech might not do much or might not be that transformative. But what is possible, incidentally, is that it will encourage a lot of uh, regulation 
innovation because you're kind of working outside the system and then forcing new, new regulation and innovating on regulations that were written 100 years ago or 50 years ago that don't make sense today. And so that's kind of like a cynical take on, on, on why crypto might still work. And to the extent that that's true, it's interesting to see if there's like some version of that that will exist in other spaces where there's just kind of like a opportunity to reset and say, hey, we've had these, regu- these regulations or these you know, bureaucratic institutions were created 50 years ago or 100 years ago, and they did some great stuff. But they're not they're not built for this era. Maybe. Uh, I think we'll have to see if they're effective in doing that. Yeah. But I, I don't think that would be a bad thing. I mean, a lot of regulations could use updating. So like that's not a crazy theory. I'm just you'd have to be a little less ham-handed in how you go about things. Yeah. Because you could get the opposite, right? If you're crypto, particularly right now and given the reputation, you could get a tightening of things you don't want tightened. Yeah. The the last camp, this is a segue into basically the Patrick Carlson progress studies camp. You know, we've talked about kind of the the, the other different kinds of camps that, that exist. I'm curious, there's a lot of alignment and you had a great episode with, with Patrick um, on, on your work and his work. Where do you perhaps uh, d- differ with, with, with him? So I'm obviously just much more sympathetic to the progress studies people. And, and I think one thing I'll say about progress studies is people underestimate, I think, how important kind of intellectual and interpersonal virtues are. In different cultures. And just one thing that I give Patrick and Tyler, who I think are sort of the founding players of progress studies, you know, going back to that Atlantic article, a lot of um, credit for is I think progress studies to a large extent share some of their intellectual virtues. There are two people who I have disagreements with them, probably more significantly with Tyler. I actually just I know Patrick, you know, well enough, but but like I don't know his. Patrick's not been blogging like all yeah. day, every day for a thousand years in the way me yeah. and Tyler have now. So like, I just know Tyler's views on like yeah. every policy in a way I don't know Patrick's, but they both have, I think, a, a, a kind of notable intellectual openness and humility and gentleness to them that has infused the particular culture that they have helped seed. And so progress studies, even where I think it has its own variants. I mean, I do think there are sort of like left progress studies types and right yeah. progress studies types and so on. I think it just has a, a kind of openness to it that, you know, uh, uh, that some of the others have turned really harsh, right? I think a lot of these things, you know, take on the cultural and the temperamental attitudes of the people on top of them, right? So I was saying earlier, there are divisions in crypto. You can really see a, a difference between like the kind of Vitalik side of crypto and like yeah. the Blasi, Chris Dixon, et cetera, side yeah. of crypto, right? Th- those cultures, even on Twitter, begin to sound like the people on top of them. So I want to note that as a thing that I, I give Tyler and, and Patrick a lot of credit for. Where are my big disagreements with Patrick? I think I actually just don't know enough about what policies he would and wouldn't support to really say. I think I've I think we're probably more or less in in some alignment these days about um, a bunch of bureaucratic questions. You know, I would say I'm probably more uncertain than he is as to whether the the scientific slowdown is truly technical. Yeah. Uh, I, I probably put more credence on the view than he does, at least in our interview, that we just can't have a doubling or tripling, or I should yeah. say doubling, I think, because that's what we talked about of the of the speed of science. I mean, that's Will McCaskill's view, I think, yeah. that like a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked. But yeah, I, I think I don't have a good answer to this in, in part because I he kind of stays to a, a lane where he's very sure. Yeah. And I, knowing Patrick, I think he's got a lot of opinions I disagree <laughs> with, but he doesn't make them a huge part of his public persona. Makes sense. In a recent podcast, you you had uh, you talked about it was kind of a year wrap uh, twenty twenty two wrap up. You talked about how equality of opportunity 
um, and equality of outcome are kind of closer than um, people are comfortable with in some ways that if you have you know grand di- differences in outcomes, it's harder to have equal uh, you know or closer to equal opportunities. And I appreciate you saying that because I feel like it's it's more intellectually honest to connect the two, not that they're totally equal, but than, than, than people often do. And I'm curious uh, when, when people talk about the idea of like saying, so you could do that. Another path is also to focus on a kind of sufficient floor for everybody uh, that is, you know, dignified and and real, but less worry about the the differences, the inequality there. Why are you less excited about that path, if I was to guess? If you were to guess why I'm less excited about that path? Yeah, or, or if I was to guess that you're less excited I mean, about that. I think I have a very strong, like, the 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 why not both yeah. girl gif here answer. <laughs> Uh, I do believe very strongly that you should have uh, a base level of sufficiency. And I don't believe the true equality of opportunity is possible. Like that's my whole, that's a whole point of that long rant I went on. And I don't believe that equality of outcome is desirable. Now I think more uh, equal opportunity is possible, um, dramatically more than we currently have. And I think more basic sufficiency is possible. And I also think more betterment is possible. I mean, one reason I focus so much now on, on questions of innovation is I think that it's really important not to get stuck in a kind of political straitjacket of imagining that all we're trying to do is redistribute the status quo along slightly more just lines. Like you want to quite dramatically change the status quo. I did a piece, must have been, um, I mean, well, I don't know when this will come out. So a couple months ago uh, when this comes out about energy abundance and, uh, you know, all the possibilities that could be unlocked by having a truly energy abundant future. The idea that we just want sort of what we have now um, rejiggered is, I think, a, a sort of poverty of imagination. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't run around trying to choose between them. I think, I think all of them. I think, they, I think they all connect to each other too. Um, you know, you're going to have more sufficiency in a more opportunity uh, equalizing world, and like that will lead to better. You know, it's it's complicated. And it's interconnected. Totally, but uh, let me ask a different variation of it. Is is the inequality of it important to focus on because inequality breeds resentment? Like. Assuming you were lifting everyone, you know, significantly, but the top was lifted more, is, is the inequality worth focusing on because it breeds resentment? I don't think that would be my first reason for focusing on inequality. Um, I think my first reason for focusing on inequality, which I don't think is something I primarily do focus on, is that I am, um, I typically am worried about. I don't think in practice you get the world you're talking about. So I think that uh, you end up getting huge gaps in political power, which ends up creating certain kinds of political outcomes. I think you end up with huge gaps in voice, which end up creating certain kinds of political outcomes. But I would be in general be less worried about a world significantly where you had more inequality, but much more rapid growth and sufficiency than in the world we're actually in. You know, I wrote a piece. Uh, this is, I mean, God, back in my Washington Post days. But I, I, I propose a sort of like distinction between a world where you had um, sort of a twice as high. I think the way I put it was like a twice as high or three times as high median wage, but more inequality versus like the median wage we have and like half as much inequality. And like, which world would you prefer? And like, I would prefer the world with twice as high or three times as high median wage. I mean, assuming we're adjusting for inflation and all that good stuff, um, with more inequality. At the same time, it's not a very real choice, <laughs> yeah. and uh, um, and I worry about you know I was talking I did a I did a fun podcast with Sam Altman a while back and we were talking about like should you know should the first trillionaire be something to is that something to celebrate 
And I said, no, then, and I would say no now. And I think you look at, you know, Elon Musk has come up a bunch in this conversation and you see why I'm worried. I don't think it is a good idea putting everything else you think aside. And I've typically been, uh, I mean, I'm less so now because he like relentlessly is like making himself a political figure. But I've said for a very long time up to and including when he bought Twitter, like, look, this is a guy who makes <laughs> green energy technologies, has made electric car school, makes rockets, yeah. and is maybe being able to code these things as culturally conservative. Like you can do a lot wrong. And that's still actually a pretty big contribution. I still don't think, even if he did less from my perspective that was uh, a problem, that the richest man in the world should just buy one of the most important one of the most important communication platforms in the world. Like that should be okay with anybody. You don't want this kind of concentration of power. And so I, I just think this stuff is not to be taken lightly. And the idea that it won't happen, right? We'll get a trillionaire, but they'll just focus on their knitting. I mean, we're seeing that that's not true. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. That happened when I was there. Like Elon right. Musk owns Twitter. Uh, what's his name? Benioff owns Time. And you know we can have different. We can have debates about the relative merits of these owners, but concentrations of political power and speech power and communications power and financial power all in the same person. I just don't think there's any way you can look at like all of human history and not worry about that. Yeah, it is fascinating. There's kind of this meta debate related to the labor and capital of, of like who actually has power. Like Bezos owns the Washington Post, but does he really determine what's on the Washington Post? Sometimes they're criticizing Amazon uh, and both sides kind of say, you know, refusing to kind of acknowledge their own power is uh, is kind of ironic. But but with Bezos, that's a choice, right? I, look, I don't know exactly how that deal is structured, right? but he could have done, I think, what Musk did. Yeah. Right, which he could have come in and fired everybody he didn't like and remade it along his image. Yeah. He didn't, and I think that's to you know his credit. But I also think the Washington Post could probably only go so hard on Amazon, yeah. Even even under its current guise, right? It can do some you know critical of Amazon reporting, but if it became a big anti-Amazon outlet, I think that would be a problem for him. You know, Rupert Murdoch has bought institutions, remade them yeah. much more along his lines. We've watched, we're watching Musk do that at Twitter. You don't want to rely on the neutrality or gentility of billionaires yeah. or hypothetically of trillionaires as your sole check yeah. on their uh, on their behavior or the or the informational comments. I think that I think that's just a naive position. Um, the fact that Bezos seems to have bought the post as a kind of legacy project and semi favor to his friend Don Graham and Musk bought Twitter because like he felt that Twitter had become too woke. The difference is not anything outside of what their intentions were. Yeah. And I just think that that is not how we should accord. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's just not how this whole thing should work. It, it is fascinating. Yeah. Elon's career arc or, or political arc in the last year has, has changed drastically and it, it, it didn't seem inevitable. It, it hasn't happened to lots of other billionaires. And so it is a question as to Will that encourage others or is this really just like a, a one-off? And it doesn't even seem deeply ideological, to your point. It, it seems more reactionary to the, the challenges he was facing uniquely. Yeah, I don't, look, I'm not, I'm not in his head. And uh, I think that this particular journey he's been on is one a number of people have been on for different reasons. And uh, like you do have you know, more liberal billionaires. I think that there is a, a kind of unrestrained nature to him yeah. where other people would not apply their own preferences quite so baldly. Like he's willing to take a level of public backlash. A lot of right. people in this position wouldn't be, right? Yeah. Willing to gamble on Tesla in a way others wouldn't, right? There's yeah. a, a, I've met him a couple of times um, 
And there is a all inness to him. Yeah. That is distinctive. And look, the one thing you learn, I think, is you just become a like a more mature person and get older. Is it for everybody? The good of them is the bad of them. Yeah. Like if you look at any person you want to um, uh, choose, like particularly people like highly on the public stage or have been very successful, it is exactly what makes them successful that makes them a problem in their own personal lives or in their professional lives or whatever. And that's true for him. It's true for everyone. So yeah, he's there's a, a lack of restraint to him that allows him to make gigantic bets and like fully commit himself to completely weird pathways. And some of them really pay off in ways I like, and some of them are, are not things I like. Most people aren't like that, but I do think something that uh, for whatever reason in this era, we're seeing that pay off more for more people. I think it is a personality type, particularly that is somewhat rewarded on social media. Like if you are this kind of person, a Donald Trump and Elon Musk, you know, and there are others like them who can sort of operate at that level, at that scale, without a lot of the sense of social restraint yeah. that pulls a lot of people back. Like, I just don't want all this incoming for good and for ill. Like, this is a pretty good era for you. I mean, maybe it's totally devastating on you personally. Like, I don't know how it feels <laughs> to them on the inside. But I, I sometimes joke that this is really the era of the trickster god. Yeah. That the the kind of personality type, mythically, that that is... Um, doing well right now, like at the very, very high levels is a trickster God. And then on the other side, like true restraint, right? So we don't talk about them as much, but it's been a very good couple of years for Joe Biden, for Tim Cook, for Jeff Bezos. Frankly, I think Mark Zuckerberg is profiting off the Elon thing quite well. All of a sudden it's like, yeah, maybe not that bad. So you have this thing where it's like you have like the highly restrained figures and their opposites. And those are the two like big personality types right now. Um, but of course the, the highly restrained figures, like they don't say that much that we talk about all the time, but I I do think the fact that, you know, temperamentally Joe Biden is such a strategic, like kind of finger in the wind player is not an accident after Trump, right? There is something about this moment where you have either the people like all in on the attentional economy or almost all out on it, but it's very hard to be half in. Like that's one reason I'm not really on Twitter or almost any of these places anymore. I'm like too much a half in person in that way. Yeah. And I prefer to be in things where I'm all in, right? Like podcasting. Uh, and so I don't know, this is a little bit of like a, a, a weird, a weird <laughs> side, side quest from me, but, but I do think there's something to that. And I think that, you know, it's, it's not just him, right? I think that there yeah. are politicians on the left and right and, you know, VCs and everybody else. Like it's a, it's a dynamic of the platforms. I, I agree with that a lot. You know, the, the good of the person is also the, the bad of them and the all in versus, versus, uh, versus not. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a good note to, to wrap on as well. You typically end your, your great podcast where you ask your guests for book recommendations. I'll, I'll ask you just for for one, for a you know predominantly a tech or Silicon Valley audience, what's a, what's either a book or, or something that they should read in, in addition to, to Wow, We're Polarized, of course, that uh, you think might you know give them some perspective outside of their, their usual perspective? I think they should read Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Yeah. Um, I think that the for most of the people we're talking about, the most important thing, like tradition to begin to unearth is like what I would call like the mid-century media theorists. And they're they're writing in the time of television. But they understood something that I think we've really lost about, I mean, the the cliche of this, of course, is a medium is a message, but nobody really understands what that means. They understood that how mediums change us and make us plastic in their hands is much more important than what we do on them. 
and more that we almost always miss that effect, that we always feel like we are the ones acting upon the medium. And it is almost always, at least as potently, the medium acting upon us and changing us. It's a huge disagreement I have with a lot of the people we've talked about in this show. Um, if you want to read a more modern version of it, you could read The Shallows by Nick Carr, um, which is a good book too, uh, and comes a little bit closer to this era. But but I think it's really worth going back to Postman, who you know, is kind of popularizing and moralizing um, Marshall McLuhan. McLuhan's great to read. You should read Understanding Media. I recognize these are a bunch of references, but um, it's worth reading Understanding Media, but it is hard to read, yeah. whereas Postman is a is a pleasure. So read Neil Postman, read um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, maybe Technopoly, I think it's called, but 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 that's where I would begin. Yeah. It, it, it was just your point on the platforms. It's funny. I mean, people started on Twitter talking about what they're eating for breakfast. And, you know, afterwards they uh, get get what we call Twitter brain and they start getting yeah. in all these, uh, all these fights. Ezra, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thank you for having me. Upstream with Eric Tornberg is a show from Turpentine, the podcast network behind Moment of Zen and Cognitive Revolution. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention Upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to $5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times the per bank limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. With thousands of pre-vetted marketers across a dozen roles, Marketer Hire matches you to your perfect marketer in 48 hours. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, Marketer Hire has you covered. So if you're a founder looking for top-notch marketing talent to grow your startup, head over to marketerhire.com to find your perfect match. Sign up with referral code UPSTREAM and you'll get $1,000 in credit on your first hire. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 